Hey, it's John. And Lexi. And before we get started, we just wanted to ask you one quick favor. If you like what you hear on our show, please, for the love of waffle fries, go subscribe to our Patreon. We pay out of pocket to make this show, and we've never made a dime on it. But we still have to pay our writers, pay for station fees, web maintenance, and a whole slew of other costs just to keep things running. So if you listen regularly, please consider kicking a little something our way. It doesn't have to be much. Just a few dollars a month can go a long way. Thanks so much, and thanks for listening. Here's the show. From WPVMLP. It's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Yannick South.
much more than fine. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Well, Lexi, what are your feelings about pie? (laughs) You know, I don't think I have a lot of feelings about pie. If we talked about wedding cakes, yeah. I'd have a lot of feelings. Yeah. Well, you work in the wedding industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But pie, I think I could take it or leave it. You're not a you're not a diehard pie person. Not a diehard pie pie person. I'm I, hypoglycemic, so I don't have a ton of affinity for sweet things. But but pie is. Well, it's weird because like my growing up, my grandmother would always make me these sugar-free pies because I was, I mm-hmm. couldn't eat the sugar. And so she would make these like kind of the – it's those ones with like the, the pre-made crust and then you'd make, just make the pudding and put the pudding in there and then top it off with whipped cream, like those pudding pie kind of things. Pudding pie. I, I can't say that I've had a pudding pie, but it sounds Oh, it's 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 not fantastic. <laughs> but when you're a kid – and you can't eat anything sweet, and your grandmother brings you something that is just yours. That's really sweet. Because no one else wants it. It was the best thing in the world. And being hypoglycemic, like, I'm not going to waste my sugar points on anything but chocolate. Mm-hmm. So she would always make it chocolate, too, which was even better. Chocolate pudding pie. And then sometimes she would make a graham cracker crust mm. for it, and that was just the best. Because you got the graham cracker and the chocolate, and it was, mm. it was pretty great. But you're not a, you're not like a, you don't, you don't make pies. I don't make pies, but I have had a life changing apple pie before. So maybe I am a pie person. Where was, where was this life changing apple pie? Um, this life changing apple pie was baked by my friend Brennan, who, um, uh, does walnuts to schoolhouse. Oh. Uh, the the crumble of the crust was perfect. The yeah. apples were perfectly tart, and uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I, they they say that the apple pie is the 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 pinnacle of the pie. They do. So I I, I can see that. Huh. I uh, I've never had that life changing apple pie. I can't do cherry pie. I'm trying to think of a pie that I love. I think it's just that one apple pie that I've had. What's the problem with cherry pie? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like because <laughs> all of these like medicines and everything are that fake cherry flavor, like it just makes you immediately averse to cherry flavored things. I think I've seen so many jars of Luxardo cherries that yeah. I just think it's poured into the ba- <laughs> into the pie crust. It's just that, a it's a it's a cocktail garnish yeah, pie. Yes. Like are there lime wedges in there too? Yeah. Orange orange peel. Huh. Yeah. Well, Kentucky writer Rebecca Brothers is deeply entrenched in the traditional Southern life of pie. Here's Lee Glass reading her story, Making Peace with Pie. I don't want to spend my life not having good food going into my pie hole. That hole was made for pies. Paula Dean. So the pie isn't perfect? Cut it into wedges. Stay in control and never panic. Martha Stewart. Our Better Homes and Gardens Pies and Cakes book is stiff with meringue and gritty with sugar and salt. 
It falls open to the cream pie section of its own accord, and traces of chocolate and lemon custard bear witness to the thorough testing of each recipe. I could find this page before I could see the shelf where the book lay, and I could ladle out each ingredient in our avocado green Tupperware measuring cups before I could really count. Nothing motivated pudgy little me more than dessert. So even if you had to read and do fractions to make a pie, I was all in. Learning to cook at your mother's elbow is a time-honored tradition for children, like crying fits in dressing rooms during prom season. My mother's boundless patience was a blessing. Her repressed groans at spills and splatters always followed by, let me show you something, instead of the more colorful words she was biting back. I once upended a full five-pound bag of domino sugar onto the linoleum. My mom started to speak, but deftly shifted gears around the hairpin turn of her tongue to say, Sugarfoot. My cooking skills lacked everything but confidence. My round arms pumping the wooden spoon in the saucepan while pigtails bounced. I learned, the hard way, that the custard will scorch and stick if you let up on that interminable stirring. I learned the boiling point of pudding pie is about a million degrees higher than my quick temper. And I learned you can work all morning making a beautiful pie and still have to wait the rest of the damn afternoon for it to cool and set, and that if you say damn, you will not get to eat the pie, and all that waiting and stirring and sitting through another episode of Little House on the Prairie was for naught. There are lessons in cooking I'm still learning, like that separating the yolks and whites does actually matter, and that close is not any more valid in egg finesse than it is in tax preparation. Some may brag of horseshoes and hand grenades in their metaphors, but cooks know the real disappointment is finding scrambled egg in your coconut cream. The newly married me wanted to make a pie for my husband because my mom and I always delighted in presenting my dad with a cool slice at the end of a hot work day. The pies were so good and they were so much trouble, and my mother had taught me well, and accurately, that not everyone can make a good pie. How many chocolate creams had she and I turned out in the 18 years before I left for college? A hundred, at least. I was particularly proud of my crust. I had a light touch, an innate gift my mom bragged about to her friends. My Crisco crusts were flaky and tender, never tough, and I would never have known to be vain about them if my mom hadn't pointed it out to me. So, I had that down pat. And I had learned to scoop and level, measure and count every drop of vanilla, milk, chocolate, coconut, or imitation rum that we'd put in all of those hundreds of pies. And I'd already failed at dinner many times in our newlywed life. Curry chicken in the crock pot would have been fine if I hadn't added rice in there too. We ate the yellow wallpaper paste concoction for three days before I finally gave up on it. Pie would be my redemption. But... I'd never really read the old cookbook until I was making that first pie on my own. Mom had sent the book with me into my married life. After the shock of my first year of teaching at last melted into the June humidity, I pulled it down off the shelf. I had time on my hands, so I didn't skip to the recipe. I cracked that sucker open to the first page. A man's first choice for dessert? Pie! That's why one of the first baking ventures of a bride is likely to be a pie, and why experienced cooks serve pie for almost every special occasion. I flipped back to the publication date, 1966. My mother had been 16 when the book was first released, wearing her hair in a flip and begging for sweater sets at Christmas. She probably learned pie making as much in home economics as she did at home. But did she learn to turn out her pie crust to please a man? Knowing my mother, no. She was her own woman, even in heels and nylons, brave enough to tell her pastor to mind his own business when he tried to tell her she shouldn't cut her hair, as it was a woman's glory. I believe her exact words were, I don't tell you how to wear your hair, you don't tell me how to wear mine. This was revolutionary stuff in the 60s in the South, a teenager daring to talk back to the minister. And besides, my mother was herself a sucker for a good slice of cool custard cream. The pie was for her. She just let Dad eat it, too. Reading Paula Deen's and Martha Stewart's quotes now about pie, it all makes sense. We do not need to demure. We can shove every forkful of dessert into our own pie holes. Unapologetic if the slices are not perfectly symmetrical. Martha says so. My mother taught me to walk that tightrope between modern feminism and my traditional roots long ago. 
but I do have a husband I love dearly and his many talents don't include dessert making. So I cook the pies and we live well in that happy sugared state. Here in Kentucky, we are surrounded by pie. Shakers, made famous for their furniture, also gave us a 19th century recipe for a lemon pie unlike any I've encountered elsewhere. New Yorker writer Sue Hubble tells us about her own encounter with shaker lemon pie in her book, From Here to There and Back Again, which has a nice hobbit-like ring to it. I'm sure hobbits love their pie. In a chapter called The Great American Pie Expedition, she explains that shakers saw the medicinal value of lemons. I'm sure this had something to do with preventing scurvy in the land of cornbread and squirrel stew. Hubble tells us that the shakers would have thought it a sin to waste any part of the lemon. Now, I can hear you already. The juice, yes, that's good stuff. And the zest, we love to sprinkle that everywhere. But are you telling me there's a recipe for a pie, an edible pie, that uses the whole lemon? Yes, yes I am. You slice the lemons paper thin, add sugar and eggs, and damn if it doesn't do its own magic as it bakes in your perfectly flaky pastry. I love that Hubble stopped in our state and ate that pie. Having someone from up north validate our cuisine like that without making fun of it is a rare treat. She was on a road trip around the whole country on her pie expedition. My favorite part of her chapter has this to say about the evils of microwaving a pie, a statement I think we can all adopt. Freshly made, warm pie is one of life's better things. But after it cools, it should be allowed to grow old gently rather than brought back to an unnatural warmth. Kentucky also has this thing called the Derby, the most exciting two minutes in sports. What our most famous horse race lacks in length, it certainly makes up for in pomp and circumstance. In Louisville, the day before Derby is a citywide holiday. School is not in session. There are weeks of parades, hot air balloon races, and a fireworks display with artillery worthy of UN inspection. The buildup cannot be overstated. And of course, there is themed food, including a contentious brand name pie sharing the race's name. I'm not sure I can even type the name of that pie without threat of litigation. There is one bakery allowed to call the pie by that name under trademark protection. And it is pretty good. A concoction of pecans, chocolate, and bourbon in a pastry so drunk and decadent, you're sure Hunter S. Thompson, if he had been a dessert, would have been this one. For me, it's the custard pies, the cream pies. They are what danced in every diner's rotating pantry case and the real fuel for truck drivers. They were the pride and joy of every Southern woman I knew. The delight of sweet filling and flaky pastry brings me right back to my childhood supper table with my mom and dad. All of us sitting in our 1989 Harvest Gold Kitchen, perpetually smiling into our lemon meringue. I didn't ask for this I wanted to go back the first time
with a ton of rich culinary traditions. My grandmother on my father's side was an excellent cook, but her doctor told her to cut back on the salt, and her food was never quite the same after that. Most of the things my mother cooked were poured from cans, and in general, she did not enjoy the process of cooking. But her mother was a pretty good cook and loved having a table full of friends and family. Long after she went blind, she would still cook family meals every week. I don't remember much of what we ate, except that she would always burn the rolls, just forgetting about them and leaving them in the oven until we were seated at the dining room table and smelled smoke from the kitchen. I also remember looking forward to her chicken and dumplings. Hers were not the traditional pillow dumplings known around the South, but were longer, pastry-like dumplings. She showed me how to make them once, but then admitted that she rarely made them from scratch when they were so readily available in the freezer aisle at the grocery store. I still make them every now and then, sometimes from scratch, but more often than not, like she did, with dumplings from the freezer aisle. And every time I cook them, it takes me right back to her little one-bedroom house with that tiny kitchen and that long dining room table. But it never tastes quite the same. Writer Smita Murthy knows that struggle of never being able to taste the things in the same way. For her, those dishes take her back to her mother's kitchen in Bangalore. The sun breaks out for just a moment drawing light away from the clouds. It's the monsoon that is hanging heavy this late in September. The kitchen and the dining room are flooded in that brief moment, illuminating the table that is meant for four, that is set for six. One of us will adjust, as we always do, making do with balancing a plate on our lap. From the puja, or prayer room, that's just behind, a bedecked elephant god, Ganesha, blinks contentedly from where he's perched. Modaks and Kadubu sat in prayer in front of him. As I walk into the kitchen, the sunlight fades, and instead, the harsh tube light illuminates the steadily humming chimney hob. Smoke fills the air from the heavy kadai my mom is presiding over. The oil is scalding as she makes a small ball from the batter in front of her. It's the Ganesha festival today, and lunchtime is round the corner, and I, as always, am getting ready for my main role in our family, the chief taster. I spoon some batter from the spicy lentil mix, or ambore, into my hands. My mom slaps my wrist, but I can't resist even as I watch her press the batter between her hands and drop it into the sizzling oil. The spicy mix is flavored with green chilies, coriander, asafetida, and that indescribable ingredient that goes into so much of our family's cooking. Is it love? Is it care? Is it home? Perhaps that's the right word for it. Home. This food is home. And my home is food. I grew up in a traditional South Indian Brahm family in Bangalore. The kitchens of my childhood were always smoky, at first with the firewood, and then later just smoky with the aroma of food. We moved from cooking with kerosene to buying our family's first gas stove. Then came the more sophisticated burners. The old two-flame gas stove gave way to a surface where my mom could boil lentils, set the pressure cooker for rice, and simmer the sambar, even while making the seasoning. The aromas were spicy and the food spicier. 
The ingredients were all handcrafted, pounded and powdered with precision. Garlic was never used, and as a result, I would, in my adulthood, grow to love the aroma and taste of garlic. Eggs were meant for the dog, and occasionally for my sister to condition her hair. Breakfasts were hot and spicy. Steaming hot idlis or rice dumplings ladled with the greenest mint chutney or the crispiest doses stuffed with a potato mix. Lunch was always rice with curry and salad or vegetable fry. We would have it from our plastic dabas, or containers. My sister, brother, and I at school, my father at the aircraft manufacturing plant where he worked, and mom at the government school. Dinners were solitary affairs, too, each of us immersed in our own private worlds. We usually never sat together, as a family, around the table. We ate separately, in our rooms, with our books, by the TV, or, just as I used to, gazing at the chaos and noise outside as traffic flowed in maniacal patterns. Perhaps I didn't realize, then, the magic of food. Perhaps we took for granted its textures. Perhaps we ignored the care. Perhaps we were just a busy, middle-class Indian family that had to make do every day. No one noticed. But it would all change with a festival. Festivals in our family weren't grand affairs. There were no ornate displays. Our celebration lay not in dazzling fireworks or brilliant lights, but in our food. Always the food. The first festival of the year was the Kannada New Year, or Ugadi, which takes place sometime in April. I was always the last to emerge for the morning prayer, where my father would be waiting to hand me the Bevu Bella, the Ugadi tradition where you had to consume a mix of neem and jageri, the bitter and the sweet, Dad tells me with a smile. The essence of life was distilled in this simple start. For lunch, the main meal of the day, we would sit together at the table. My mom and her help, our adopted sister, would serve us all. We would have guests every now and then. A brother-in-law joined us later. The steel plates in front of us, and occasionally banana leaves, if we were lucky. First, the payasam, or rice pudding. Tradition is to taste the sweet first, unlike the West, where you have dessert later. Then followed a salad, soaked lentils with grated cucumber or carrots and always spiced with green chilies, pickles by the side. And finally came the grand entrees, sizzling ambodes, the outer crust giving way to the crumbly lentil mixture. Hot bondas, deep-flied gram flour with the red chili powder and cradling a soft potato mix. Spicy pakoras, the onions poking their ribs. The curries, the dips, the chutneys and the mixes. The food was part of the show. No, it was the show. Here, here was home, as I had always known it. Gentle conversation, family gossip. Here, even the gossip was gentle. Somehow the food mellowed everyone. We would accept scandalous love marriages. We would only briefly talk about a divorce. How about that cousin who married that Ukrainian? Food for thought? Perhaps for a minute, but it would pass. We would gently mull over these unconventions in a society that prides itself on convention. I've always wondered at my family's sense of acceptance. We wouldn't ever have garlic at home, but, but we would accept intercaste marriages, intercultural relationships, alternate lifestyles, divorces, adoptions, mental illness, in a society that still struggles to accept most of these. We would argue over the obatu, the sweet flatbread. There were two varieties, either stuffed with jigeri or with coconut. I liked the jigeri. My sister and father preferred coconut, but all of us agreed on one thing. The flatbread had to be coated liberally with ghee. Only occasionally would my mom give in to my demands for the pancake with jigeri. She most often tried to please the majority. As a child, I viewed this as unfair, yet another indication of what I thought was the privileged status my dad and sister were accorded. For years, I simmered in resentment until the day, through another festival celebration, I realized we had never asked mom what she preferred. Coconut, it turned out, when I did ask. My choice of jigeri, what I also assumed was mom's choice, would never have been the majority, if she had only voiced her choice too. Food for my mom was always to be given away. In the food she cooked, did she pour out all that she left unexpressed? In the luscious swirls of the kodbales, where the deep-fried gram flour left imprints on our food-hungry souls for days— 
in the bisi belebat, that traditional hot lentil dish of my hometown that my Christian friend would take back to her house, deep freeze and have weeks later. That's not how it should be had, Mom would cry out in shock. But that's precisely how it should be had, my friend admonished me gently. It's relished, cherished, every last spoon frozen or thawed. Years later, my friend would move to Germany, where she could no longer share our bisi belebat. There, the food left her frozen, pining for the warmer days in Bangalore. Send me your mom's recipe, she would beg when the winter's night was too long and her heart ached for spice. My mother was perplexed at this request, because you see, there was never a recipe. No app, no notebook faded with the jottings of years past. Just her memory, and for us, the memories of her food. Over the years, the people seated at our dining table for festival gatherings changed. My sister married, and so did my mother's help, our all-encompassing family guardian. My brother left for worlds we struggled to name, leaving us trapped in our little pockets of grief. But then a nephew came, changing grief into hope. My sister always came for all of the festivals, the two of us, clad in different clothes, but wearing the same soul. From the Yugadis and the Festival of Lights, Diwali, to the Ganesh Festival and Sankranti, through all of them, the hot oil, the sweets, the curries remained unchanged, their flavors no match for the ever-changing dynamics of our lives. Through them all, we aged too, wearing our years on our hearts and lightly immersing our greys in the comfort of the black. But perhaps nothing symbolizes age's clawed hands more than my mother, Crippled, tired by a lifetime of fighting diabetes, her forays into the kitchen are restricted to lunch now. No longer is she able to make the rich breakfasts that our relatives in New Jersey or New York would dream of. Instead, we order breakfast from another Brahm family. Lunch is no longer an elaborate meal, and dinner is ordered out. Now that we can't take food for granted, we miss it. I feel unmoored as if one anchor that has held me down amid the driftwood of my life's mess has floated away. Will our festivals ever be the same again? As I sit down at breakfast to have the fat dosas, tepid, dank, and moist from being carried inside a casserole dish from a kitchen outside this house, I long for the days when my mother would make the crispiest, crumbling dosas. Back when I would grumble that it wasn't crispy enough. I think of the elaborate masala idlis, sprinkled with ghee and served on tiny banana leaves, all aching with the tenderness of the morning. I crumble that memory to dust as my fingers weakly break open the store-bought idli that has only plumpness to its name. None of the warmth. I think of food's march through my family's past. I picture us huddled around a table, scant space and all, heat rising through the rice, wisps of smoky spice wafting through the hot sambar, the sweet and the sour, merging with the banal words of our conversations. I inhale the aroma of the ambores. I can smell each memory, each festival, each celebration. I close my eyes, then, in that sweet ache of the past. And I am home. That was Courtney DeGeneiro Robinson reading Food is Home, Home is Food by Smita Murthy. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Maybe I'm lonely. Maybe it's true. Oh 
I'm pretty sure everyone's familiar with the restorative power of a good soup. As a kid, was there anything better after a long day of playing in the snow than a grilled cheese and tomato soup? Could anything fit a rainy day more than a big bowl of pho? Or can you imagine a better cure for a nasty cold than homemade chicken noodle soup? Writer Laura Brennan found out firsthand about the restorative power of soup while she and her theater troupe were out on tour. Here's Delina Hensley reading Laura's story, Much Ado About Soup. I find myself in Utah at the start of 2022. I'm an actor in an eight-person educational touring production of Much Ado About Nothing. We also tour with a company manager, a stage manager, and a technician. I love this work. I've blossomed into a full-blown Shakespeare nerd in the past few years, and bringing Shakespeare to students is some of the most magical stuff there is. I'm addicted to this very specific thrill of seeing students' eyes light up when they realize that they're understanding Shakespeare. Something that previously seemed so elitist is comprehensible and funny and is being performed with lights, sounds, props, costumes, and a full set in their school's cafetorium at 9 a.m.? Please, don't misunderstand. Many students nap through our shows. But for others, this is the first play they've ever seen. We perform for elementary through high school age students in Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, and Idaho. We go to some exceptionally rural communities. Lots of cows, not a lot of theater. Our 11-person company consists of artists from all across the country, and we all arrive in Cedar City, Utah at the beginning of 2022 to start this Much Ado About Nothing contract. A few of my castmates are Chicago-based actors like me. A few are from New York. One brave soul on our tour drove from Texas. We've all descended on sunny Cedar City for the Utah Shakespeare Festival's annual Shakespeare in the Schools program. Utah is like no place I've ever been. There are rusty red mountains everywhere. The expansiveness of everything spooks me a little. It is sunny in January. This also spooks me as someone who grew up with cloudy Pittsburgh winters, but the bright winter sunshine is welcome. Mormon culture is also more prevalent than I initially imagined. Impressive Latter-day Saint temples are easy to spot from the highway. They're fortress-like, typically have bright white or cream-colored exterior walls, and each one is topped with a gleaming angel Moroni on a spire. At night, the outside of the temples are aggressively illuminated, so that from afar they look like a mass of twinkle lights against dark mountains and vast stretches of cattle fields. Alcohol and coffee are off-limits for Latter-day Saints, but sugar is fair game. As a result, the Utah liquor laws are rigid, and in lieu of 6% ABV beers in the grocery store, there are crumble cookie stores, originally founded in Utah, and soda shops galore. There's also a Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints community in Cedar City, and I see women and young girls with impressively braided hairstyles and long pastel dresses in the park near our apartments and at the local Walmart. It's common to travel to new places for work multiple times per year as a theater practitioner. If you're lucky, (laughs) i.e. employed, You're frequently packing your life into suitcases to spend a few weeks or months on a contract. It's a unique way to see different parts of the country and to quickly make new friends. Like clockwork, I feel nervous airport butterflies whenever I'm about to start a new job. But this unsettled feeling always fades. The grand payoff is a new experience with new friends and a new piece of theater that you get to make together. As a deeply introverted, self-professed country mouse, I value being shot out of a cannon into new experiences like this. Still, it's difficult to spend months away from your friends, your family, and your own bed. An educational tour is a uniquely specific type of contract. It entails rehearsing a show in one place for a few weeks, learning how to teach a theater-based workshop for students, learning how to construct 
deconstruct and Tetris pack your set into a truck or van and then literally taking the show on the road. You'll typically stay in multiple different spots throughout the week based on which schools or venues have booked the show through the Producing Theater's Education Department. The work of an educational tour is hard but rewarding. The schedule changes constantly and you quickly learn how to squeeze in a full REM cycle on the back seat of a minivan. One of my Much Ado castmates has an entire playlist series with the primary function of being so chaotic and shockingly varied in song genre that it can keep the driver alert and awake for hours. Some mornings on the Much Ado tour, we're in our vans at 4 a.m. to travel to a show. When we arrive at the school or venue, we groggily but carefully unload our set and lights and sound system and props and costumes from our 15-foot box truck. Hands on, hands off is our constant safety chorus as our box truck lift gently lowers enormous black trunks onto the loading dock and we steady them with multiple sets of hands. We roll or team lift our stash of theatrical goodies into the new space and set everything up. Lights are focused and sound is tested. We get into costume. My fellow castmates and I do some lip trills and planks as we vocally and physically warm up as efficiently as possible. We do our show. The company returns to the stage after our bows for a talk back with the audience. Students can ask us questions about the show or theater in general. The questions range from incredibly insightful... Why does Don John feel such vicious animosity towards his brother Don Pedro? To, what was that show about? We do a workshop with students in which we gently beg them to wear their masks. We deconstruct our set and lights and sound system and props and costume and strategically load it all back into our truck. We caravan our 15-foot box truck and two minivans back to our motel. We are exhausted but happy. I see those thrilling sparks in some of the students' eyes when they laugh with Benedict or or jeer at Claudio. We know we've won their attention and, perhaps, their hearts. These invested and uninhibited student audiences are my favorite. But we are so hungry. Reliable food sources are few and far between. We are staying mostly in budget-friendly hotels and motels as we tour through the West. Except for one luxurious Airbnb stay in a giant house full of BYU paraphernalia, we have no access to a kitchen. We find dinners and snacks where we can, but sometimes the only thing open when we drive into town is the local gas station supermarket. If we're staying in or around a larger city, we make a sacred pilgrimage to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's to strategically stock up on groceries that we can squeeze into our motel mini-fridges. A few of us develop an expensive, low-grade addiction to green juices for the sake of convenient nutrients. I quickly learn the value of having a mini-fridge and microwave in the room. In addition to my luggage, I take to toting around Trader Joe's bags full of produce and other snacks. I've played fast and loose with transporting my Greek yogurt and half and half from motel mini-fridge to mini-fridge. And then in early March, we travel to Delta, a small town in central Utah. This booking is a little unusual because we have an evening show open to the whole community instead of our typical school day show for students. Today's schedule looks like this. We'll do a workshop in the afternoon for theater students. We'll load our set into the auditorium. We'll check into our days in. And finally, we'll have an evening performance open to students and the community. The performance is sponsored by the county's cultural council. They will be providing us with a dinner at the high school before our evening performance. Naturally, we are thrilled. We've been subsisting on microwave fare for weeks. It's a bright and sunny Utah day, the school is beautiful, and the auditorium is enormous. The dressing rooms are spacious and clean, and the workshop students are earnest and delightful. We are characteristically hungry, though, so everyone is looking forward to this cultural council dinner. 
Provided meals on tour, however, can be a real mixed bag. We've been burned before in the style of room temperature pizza from the school cafeteria. We temper our hopefulness for a warm and nourishing pre-show meal. But when we arrive at the high school for this dinner, we are greeted by a spread of crock pots and insulated stock pots accompanied by the home cooks themselves. There is no leftover cafeteria lunch fare here. We deduce that these sweet, smiling home cooks are mostly Mormon women, based on the fact that we are in central Utah and that we say a prayer before we feast. We secretly and lovingly crown them our Mormon mothers. Their hospitality will soon become tour legend. This early evening supper marks the beginning of what will be referred to as soup show for the duration of our tour. There are seven or eight steaming containers of soups and chilies, a daring theme for a potluck. How do you prevent soup from sloshing all over the floor of your car in transport? Feels risky. But it's exactly what we weary travelers need. Something warm and prepared in a real kitchen. There is chicken soup, vegetable minestrone, a meaty chili, a vegetable chili, potato and leek soup, etc. Truly a soup for every mood. Everything is labeled, and I want to sample all of it. Every topping you could ask for accompanies this extensive soup spread. There are also fresh veggies and fruits and breads and homemade individual dessert parfaits. We are giddy. We are overcome by this abundance and by the generosity of the Cultural Council women. Someone's entire house must smell like cabbage right now so that we could be warmed by some delicious stuffed cabbage soup. We can't stop thanking these women for their home-cooked food. We help ourselves to soup tastings. I have an empty mason jar in my backpack, and I store some extra veggie minestrone for a post-show treat. It's a job for my motel microwave later, but for now, the soups are steaming, our bellies are full, and we feel nourished and comforted. One of my castmates accidentally professes his love for one of our Mormon mothers. He is embarrassed, but I think the core sentiment is true. We are all deeply touched by the hospitality of these women. Who knew a soup buffet potluck is exactly what this hungry touring company needed? Now we are fueled and ready to give this Utah community the best 75-minute educational production of Much Ado About Nothing they have ever seen. In the women's dressing room before the show, my castmate takes a video. In this video, the three other women in the cast and I are in costume and finishing our makeup right before we are called to places. We're dancing and blasting Chance the Rappers all night as we get ready for our show. We are sparkling and full of energy. We have truly been revived by soup. It's one of my favorite videos. It reminds me how far a little homemade soup can go. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Yannick South, Savannah Conley, Miss Grit, Boyish, Rachel Chinarini, King Tough, Everything But The Girl, Jersey Dudu Matuzowicz, John Fahey, Tyler Ramsey, Ananda Shankar, Andrew Tuttle, Oliver Arnolds, Michael Andrews, David Arnold and Paul Hart, and Carter Burwell. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.